Welcome back to Neural Networking. I'm Alex Benick. Long time, no listen. I'm so sorry for the wait. I just graduated and it has been a crazy past month and a half with finals, apartment hunting, so much, etc. But we are back today with a new episode with none other than Dr. Fox, the director for Virginia Tech School of Neuroscience. He's going to share so much wisdom about his journey through his studies, researching, his career, and it will give lots of helpful insight, especially for those of you who are interested in research. I'm also sorry the audio quality is lacking. This was my first in-person interview, which was wonderful, and I had a nice mic to record on, but of course it didn't work. Thankfully, I had my phone recording, which is what you'll be hearing. So I hope everyone is doing well and having a wonderful start to your summer. Now, without further ado, here is Dr. Fox. So I usually like to start by hearing a little bit about our professors' backgrounds, kind of how they grew up. Um, not usually anything to do with narrow, but it's just interesting to hear about like what connections you might have with other students. So a little bit about like your origin story. Where did you grow up? What kind of things were you into? If, if they were science-related, if not, what was it like growing up for you? Okay, so I grew up on the East Coast, mm-hmm. um, all the way from Massachusetts to Virginia, okay. a little bit of Ohio in there. I moved uh, around a lot. My mm-hmm. father was an inventor, and we would move wow. to wherever he could sell one of his inventions. What kind of inventions did he make? Uh, he is into plastics and food processing, and so mm-hmm. he would come up with ways to put food into plastic containers and seal them. And so his most famous invention is the Mott's applesauce container. Really? That is fascinating. <laughs> I've never and so met someone. And so we moved around a lot, and um, in middle school we moved to England when they started a, a new plant there okay. um, to do the same sort of packaging stuff. So lots of time in Virginia, in Massachusetts, and in um, Stamford, England, which is about 100 miles north of London. Okay. How long did you live in England before coming back here? I was there for three years, basically middle okay. school. So That's while great. everybody here was learning to play American sports like football mm-hmm. and baseball, I was playing cricket and mm-hmm. rugby, rugby yeah. and field hockey. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it was a unique experience. Have you, uh, Dr. Simmons lived in England for a bit. He, that was part of like his origin story too, was playing rugby and stuff. When did you find yourself interested in science then? Uh, it definitely wasn't until I got to college. Okay. Um, what did you come into college as? I went major? to college to do engineering. Okay. <laughs> Probably like lots of students here Yeah. <laughs> uh, at Virginia Tech. Uh, I went to West Point, the United States Military oh, okay. Academy. Yeah. And was a nuclear engineer for two years. So you I also, wanted to do military as well? I, at the time, I did. I, <laughs> um, I also played tennis mm-hmm. and um, was recruited there to be on the tennis team. Okay. And so it was like that combination of the, the strength in engineering, mm-hmm. that I could play tennis there, that I felt like I fit in. Um, and I stayed there for two years, and then I transferred. And okay. part of me transferring to William & Mary was that um, I tutored the tennis team uh, while I was there, and I learned that I liked that sort of interaction of, of teaching and oh, helping okay. others. Yeah. And so before that time, I really didn't even contemplate a career in academia, mm-hmm. but it was kind of through my classwork and that interaction that I thought, you know, maybe this is the career path that I would prefer. Hmm. It's, it's funny that I now have 
an office that overlooks a drill field <laughs> because I have Your strong memories. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, the buildings at West Point have a lot of the same look and the same stone okay. as Hokie Stone here. And so like it, it really past. does feel like uh, a little bit of a memory when I look out the window. Do you miss military stuff at all? Um, I definitely liked it, enjoyed mm-hmm. it, and did well there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I often think that to be a cadet at Virginia Tech, it's actually much harder I than to be a cadet at West Point. Because there's uh, because civilians you, all around you, right? Because you have to mm-hmm. live in both worlds, whereas when yeah. you're in West Point... That's the only world you see. You're immersed and so, in it. Yeah, it's, mm. it's much easier, I think, for them. Although I, it, those at West Point right now probably don't agree with me. That it's... Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I have so much respect for the cadets here. I have thought about that, too, if it's harder, like, watching your friends stay out past, like, 7 or 8 or whatever time their curfew is. Yep. Um, so, like, going off, I guess, of transferring from West Point and your major and everything. So on oh, so so from West Point, mm-hmm. uh, they, believe it or not, don't have very many biology classes. You okay. You can't actually take biology, or at least when I was there, you couldn't take it until you were a junior. Huh. So all of my science classes were chemistry and physics, and so when I transferred, okay. I decided to stay a chemistry major because I could still graduate in two years. That so, explains a lot, because... I was like, you did chemistry, anatomy, biology, like in all your different sections, and then you've taught lots of things, so it seems like you have a wide spectrum of the sciences, Yep. but not narrow specifically. Well, part of that, I think, is also the times when I was in school is mm, there weren't as many yeah. neuro programs, no. and so I, I entered the chemistry program at William & Mary, mm-hmm. I got into a lab doing analytical chemistry, but my actual project was to look at DNA breaks and things, you know, cells undergoing apoptosis, mm-hmm. uh, Alzheimer's, okay. things right. like that. And so I kind of had this uh, kind of back entrance into mm-hmm. neuroscience. I also transferred from West Point with so many extra credits um, that I had to take 60 credits at William & Mary to graduate, mm-hmm. but most of my major credits were done, and so I got to take Fun a ton stuff. of electives. <laughs> yeah. I took 10 PE classes in college. <laughs> classes. Um, That's so many. <laughs> but I also took anatomy, and so okay. I really enjoyed that course as well. Mm-hmm. And so during the process of figuring out what to do next, um, I ended up in a PhD program that initially was anatomy, mm-hmm. and during my PhD, they changed their title to anatomy and neurobiology. Oh, okay. Nice. Out of curiosity, what are the main majors at West Point? Um, well, everyone has to be, they don't have to major in engineering, but they have mm-hmm. to take a track in engineering, which is like, a, mm-hmm. it's probably more than a minor, but I don't think I knew that they were that focused major. on engineering. Yeah. That's very interesting about your, like, transition into neuro. So I assume you just, like, fell in love with it during your, uh, was it your postdoc? During, during my, the end of my undergrad, when I was in a lab working on something kind of neuro-related. Okay. And then jumping into an anatomy program. That was also neurobiology. Where most anatomy programs at the time, Mm -hmm. um, the science, the active science that was going on was either neuroscience related or maybe cardiovascular related. Okay. And I ended up in all of the labs that I rotated in and that I was interested in were um, neuroscience related. 
Okay. So then you could say, like, well, how did you pick your specific discipline? And I wish I could say there was some forethought in it, but a lot of it was just luck. For, like, your research interests? For my research interests. Okay. I was going to ask you how you got into what you researched, but it was just kind of luck to you. Well, I went into that program in anatomy and neurobiology thinking I wanted to do some sort of um, brain cancer research. Okay. Like many people, that had been something that had impacted my family and mm-hmm. my and my life up to that point, and so I was pretty passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And I um, started as a research technician the summer before I was in grad school in a lab that was doing that, mm-hmm. with the idea that I would just transition into their lab as a graduate student. I didn't really love what I was doing day to day. I loved the concept of it, mm-hmm. but like my day to day life was pretty monotonous to me, and I really didn't like it. And at the end of my first year, that lab decided to move, and and they picked a place that I didn't want to move to, and so I stayed, (laughs) and I had to rotate through other labs quickly. And so I rotated through two other labs, and one was this brand-new faculty member. She had just gotten to Virginia Commonwealth University Mm -hmm. Medical Center, um, and I just fell in love with what she was doing, which was um, neurobiology, developmental neurobiology. So Mm -hmm. she was interested in how the myelinating cells of the brain, the oligodendrocytes, how they are generated, Mm -hmm. how they find axons to ensheath, how they make this myelin sheath. Mm -hmm. And so I had never really taken any developmental neurobiology courses, but that concept of how you create such a complex organ like the brain really captivated me and kind of um, set me on a path for my whole career. So, uh, for people that don't know, what is like a brief, like how would you describe your research to somebody? So I transitioned from that to a totally different part of brain development, mm-hmm. which was moving away from the, the myelinating or glial cells of the brain and looking at the neurons. Right. And so I, I think most people probably have heard of just how complex the brain is, and it's because of the just the diversity and the number of neurons that exist. Right. And for me, the next step in, in my training and what I really thought I wanted to dive into for my whole career is to try to understand how that complexity arises. Mm-hmm. How do we have so many neurons, right. and how do they find the right partner cells to mm-hmm. form connections with? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... You know, I often t- start talks to the public or to, to scientists about, you know, you, we have 100 billion neurons in the human brain, mm-hmm. and some of those neurons can be connected to 100,000 others, you know, or get, let me put it another way, can have 100,000 inputs onto that one neuron. Mm-hmm. And so if you <laughs> do a little bit of math, you can see that the and number of connections is one quadrillion, which is... A one followed by 15 zeros. (laughs) It's a number so big, it's hard to actually fathom what it means. Yeah, to comprehend that. And so if you were to, you know, I often, as an example, say, if you were able to open my skull and visualize individual connections, individual synapses, it would take you 32 million years to count every synapse in my brain if you could do one second at a time. Of course, we can't do that. That's Mm -hmm. far faster than we can... (laughs) count them, but it just gives you that scope, that scale of what does one quadrillion synapses mean? Yeah. And so how your brain and my brain, a lot of those connections, the vast majority of them are on the same cells, in the same place, Mm -hmm. 
how does that happen during development? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you form such precise connections in such a complex system? And that's what really drives research in my lab. Okay. What a topic. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would take a long time to study. <laughs> I don't think any of us that are interested in studying it think we're going to solve the whole thing, but maybe right. if we can dive into one bit. little part of brain, we mm-hmm. can do it. And so we yeah. pick you know, very precise regions of brains and, and, and study them in depth, and we pick them because um, either they're accessible and we can manipulate them to understand them, mm-hmm. or maybe we think they're particularly important for a behavior that we want to understand. So yeah. a lot of the work in my lab focuses on the visual system for both of those reasons. I think it's system. really important for human behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, we use that sense probably more than others mm-hmm. as a species, but it's also really accessible because our eyes are kind of outside the skull and they contain this, um, this neural tissue, the retina, which is actually mm-hmm. part of your brain. And we can manipulate it really easily to study how the retina connects to the brain. Yeah. I remember um, in my Salamalek class with Dr. Gilbert, the like overarching theme of our class is, like, I'm teaching you this now. It could change, and it probably will change. Just like you said, someone will research a small part of a huge spectrum, and then someone else will take that research and, like, expand, you know, you work off of all the little research that everyone's doing since the brain's just endless and we get like little bits every year so she said like in five years something could be taught differently than what you're learning now but it's all built off of like research like yours that you're constantly learning something new about one specific part so I think to be a good scientist you have to get really excited about (laughs) advances that (laughs) other people might think are small but because you're at the leading edge and nobody's done them before, yeah. they still are a big step forward. Yeah. And if you get really excited about that, then I think there's a good career ahead of you in, uh, in academic research. That's a good tip for people that are looking to be in that. you got to appreciate all your little steps, I'm sure. Okay, so going off of that, you know, many of our neuro students want to be researchers, you said you kind of, uh, it was like through tutoring your tennis team that, that kind of showed you that you are interested in like research and academia and stuff. Um, what advice do you have for the students trying to get into research now in college? I think if you're interested in a career in research or in um, pursuing additional training after your undergraduate degree in mm-hmm. research, the most important thing is to have those experiences in a research lab Mm -hmm. or doing research, independent research, um, Mm -hmm. as an undergraduate. What would independent research be considered? Um, In a lab where you are driving or doing uh, your own research program. So like your own questions? Your your own, well it might be, topics might be given to you by the principal investigator of the lab, but you're responsible for driving with that, right? You're not just shadowing somebody. You're not just showing up and following a graduate student around. You're actually Mm -hmm. getting exposed to it. And there's a few reasons why I think that's important. First, anybody who's applying to graduate school and Mm -hmm. is competitive for graduate school probably has that experience. So just to be competitive nowadays, it's important. Mm -hmm. Second, 
the story I told you about my first research experience. Yeah. I like the concept of it, the theme of it, the end goal, which is, you know, the 20-year goal or something. I love that, but I didn't really love what I did every day. Yeah. And I think having that experience in lab will tell you what do you like to do every day because it's important that you like the end goal, but it's also mm -hmm. important that you like what you do Monday to Friday or, or whatever day you're working. Yeah. You know, and I think that's an important experience to have before you launch into a... Uh, some sort of advanced training uh, in research, like a graduate program. Did you, when you were in the lab where you didn't necessarily like the day-to-day, -day, did you hold out hope because you knew the end goal like would be more enjoyable? Like, did you think that other labs would be more enjoyable on the day-to-day, -day, or did you not know if they would all be like more mundane day-to-day -day, like your first one? I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question, and now it's a long time ago to think back <laughs> to what I was feeling. But I think at the time, mm -hmm. I probably would have stayed in that lab and hoped that I liked the end product. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think, in hindsight, I probably only left the lab because the lab was moving. moving. And mm -hmm. I probably would have never experienced that, wow, I really like what I'm doing every day in this other lab until maybe I went on to do a postdoc or some other training mm -hmm. um, if, I, if I wasn't dissuaded from it from kind of the monotony of what I was doing in that particular lab. I was just curious for like kids now doing research. I know it's a thing where typically you want to stay in a lab as long as possible because I guess it look, you, I guess you get more responsibilities and you I wasn't personally in research but I have lots of friends that were, and I know they, some of them didn't necessarily, as you as well, like the project they were working on or something, or just their role in the lab, but didn't want to switch because it, I guess, looked better to stay with the lab. But then you also have, it's just interesting hearing your story, having a better experience in the other lab. I don't know. Like, so I think this is really challenging because mm -hmm. the first part you said is true, mm -hmm. that in order to be competitive for applications to medical school or yeah. graduate school or combined programs like the MD-PhD program, you want to not just have worked in a lab but have some sort of product, which right. could be getting to present a poster at a meeting mm -hmm. or it could be being a co-author on a manuscript. Mm -hmm. These are things that really set you apart mm -hmm. as an undergraduate researcher mm -hmm. compared to your peers, and, and it's something I try to get all of the undergrads in my lab to accomplish, Yes, to present. Mm -hmm to be an author, um, that takes time. Right. Right, so you want to stay in a lab for a long time. And it makes sense why you wouldn't time. want to move. Yeah. Because it also takes a while to develop skills in the lab and to, you know, be trained. And so it makes sense, but, yeah. But usually <laughs> I, when I first meet with people that are going to join the lab, I talk about this. I say, mm -hmm. you know, A, I want to find a project in my lab that you're interested in, that you yeah. like doing not just the concept of, but the hands-on mm -hmm. approaches to. Um, but I also want them to be cognizant that even though they like the concept of studying how the wires are laid down in the brain, which is what my lab does, mm -hmm. they might not like the day-to-day -day stuff, or they might not like the fact that we use animal models and they're going to have to get used to using animal yeah. models. So I think there is a little bit of matchmaking at the beginning okay. to find the right fit. And then once you find that fit, you want to stay in that lab as long as you can to be as productive as possible. That's a, yeah, no, that's really good advice. I think 
I guess when students are like looking to be involved in a lab, just kind of screening, talking with the uh, professor who's running it, I guess, to see if it's a good match for you. Kind of have to, I guess part of it is taking a little bit of risk into jumping into that lab, yeah. but <laughs> maybe it makes you more grateful later on if you end up with a project you like, I don't know. As far as getting into a research lab, would you recommend, uh, I think the most common way I've heard of is to just meet with professors, talk with them, see if they even have openings, stuff like that. Um, I don't know if there's any alternative ways that you know of, of people to get their foot in the door. So I think here in the school, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, at some of the research institutes, like at Fralin Biomedical Research Institute, there might also be kind of a director of education that might have um, kind of a, a website that lists openings mm-hmm. or faculty that might be interested. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's also um, summer research experiences right. that are sometimes funded internally, like we do here in the school, mm-hmm. uh, or through philanthropy, or sometimes funded externally by uh, things like the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so those are also programs to apply for. And there's a kind of a, a number of them at Virginia Tech already right. uh, that, that students can apply for. How should people go about deciding what school they would want to continue their education at? Is that like a concern, or I guess will any school give you your end goal? Sometimes so, people have a hard time. Like, so yeah, how do you, once you get into graduate school yeah. or professional school, how do you pick where to go? Yeah. There's so many parts to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there can be um, personal parts, mm-hmm. you know, where you want to be, what sort of environment you want to be. Mm-hmm. There's in terms of the science part, if you if you focus just on say the graduate school part, you know every department that has a graduate program or every graduate program has kind of specialties. Mm-hmm. And do they have the specialty for you? That you're looking for. And yeah. if you find a graduate program where you like just one person or one person's research, you know that's a little risky because what if you don't like that person or that the yeah. lab? If you don't feel like the lab is a good environment, now you're in a graduate program where you don't really have other options that you've thought of. And so I think one thing to keep in mind is to to pick places that have lots of opportunities, lots of laboratories that you might be interested in, mm-hmm. because um, you're going to want those choices when you land. Our mentorships like really recommended um, for people looking to research and do academia. You think? Well, I think at different parts of your career, you need different types of mentorship. Mm-hmm. And so as um, someone with an undergraduate degree that's really kind of at the beginning phase of their scientific career, mm-hmm. getting good mentorship early on during the graduate uh, studies phase of your career, what we call the, the pre-doctoral phase, is essential. Because okay. eventually you're going to be let loose as a postdoc mm. with l- less guidance more freedom. I don't know. I guess that's a positive or negative. Yeah. And you want to have all the skills Mm -hmm. needed to be successful when you become more independent. Yeah. And so early mentorship is really important for academic training. If you have all that freedom, I guess it depends how comfortable are you navigating it versus like needing to go back to the mentor. Yep. So now I'm going to ask you just a few questions about being director of the School of Neuro now. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, was this something you ever thought you would do? Did you ever think you'd be the director for a school out of college? Uh, I think, so right bef- 
before this position, I was a center director mm -hmm. um, at the Fralin Biomedical Research Institute. And so I think if you asked me that 10 years ago when I was an assistant professor, um, I would have said, you know, no, I'm just thinking <laughs> about my research. Right. You know, it's research, research, research. Mm -hmm. But then as my career progressed and you take different paths, I think it I became more interested in not just mentoring students and trainees in my lab, but also mentoring junior faculty. Yeah. And then I started thinking more about leadership positions as chair of a department, mm -hmm. director of a school, those sorts of things. You're becoming that mentor that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. That's really cool, full circle. Uh, how was the transition into this position during the pandemic? Well, when I <laughs> agreed to, to take it, obviously I didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. Um, it's definitely been a challenge mm -hmm. um, to transition into a position where you are constantly interacting with faculty mm -hmm. and staff, and all of a sudden those first interactions mm -hmm. are all virtual. Yeah. So I was pretty fortunate that I was already at Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. I was a faculty member in biological sciences. My lab was in Roanoke at FBRI, and I was mm -hmm. directing a center there. But in the years previous, I had either been on search committees for the School of Neuroscience, or I was collaborating with faculty in the School of Neuroscience. So you might have gotten to meet them before. I invited a lot of them to give talks in Roanoke at the Research Institute. And so fortunately, I already had established some relationships with some of the faculty, which made it much easier. I can't imagine, I know that there's a lot of leaders here at Virginia Tech that have come in the last year from other universities, mm -hmm. other yeah. places, and I can't imagine how hard it was for them to transition into their leadership roles in a pandemic, you know, shutdown yeah. where everything was Zoom. I, I feel like I was a little, it was still difficult, but I was much more, uh, I was fortunate that I knew some of the faculty ahead of time. Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely nice. I can't imagine that transition. So not your director. Where do you hope or see the School of Neuro headed in your upcoming years? So I think I get asked this question a lot as really? a new director. So I thought it was um, a good question. <laughs> I, I want to be consistent with what I've said every other time. Okay. Uh, so I think um, we want to have responsible growth as a unit. So to continue the growth trajectory that we're on. To like make the school in, larger, more Both students. in terms of okay. students and faculty, I think that's important. And part of that responsible growth is not just undergraduates, but this new graduate program we have. Mm. Um, we just accepted seven graduate, our first real cohort of graduate students that will come in together, wow. not through <laughs> other programs. And so they arrive in August, so that's exciting. There's seven um, of them? Yep. Whew. Yeah, so I think so that'll take us up to 15 total School of Neuroscience um, graduate wow. students. That's exciting. And um, I think as importantly as growth, mm -hmm. we are, as a unit, as a, a school, very bottom-heavy, meaning we have lots of assistant professors mm -hmm. and very few senior faculty. Uh, we have two associate professors, and I'm the only full professor. Hmm. Everybody else is an assistant professor. So I don't know. What's the difference between those? I never knew the difference. So there are different career stages, you know. Okay. And so um, the assistant professors typically have just come from their postdoctoral training. They're f first setting up their 
research programs, mm -hmm. and uh, they have a certain number of years before they go up for tenure and promotion. And so a huge part of my uh, job as a, as a director and as a mentor is mm -hmm. to shepherd them yes. through that process. And so uh, it doesn't maybe sound as exciting as growth, but mm -hmm. it's equally important. And so that's, a, so. that's something I'm really <laughs> passionate about is trying to, to help all of the faculty through, uh, mentor them through tenure and promotion. Mm -hmm. And so this year we'll have a few go up and I think we'll see that every year. And it's a big part of what a department or a school does. So does that mean most of the professors are in like their first few years of teaching? Yep. Huh, that's kind of surprising to me because I always felt like all of the people that taught us were, I, I don't know which ones of them were associate professors or anything, but I always thought they were, I would have never guessed that actually, um, just based off of the neuro courses and how they run. But I think when you look as a director, what I see, I don't sit in those classes, but right. I see student evaluations and spot scores, and <laughs> and I think we excel as a unit in terms oh, would, of yeah, our what we deliver in terms of our our educational mission, yeah. and I think that that speaks even more because so many of these faculty, this is their first position, their first time, mm -hmm. really directing courses like this um, to as many students, and so I think we mm -hmm. just have recruited talent and that's why it seems like that. I agree with that definitely because I'm very curious to go back and look on because I, I think it will say on the faculty page what everyone is and I just never knew the difference between them but know that bodes well for the School of Neuro though that yep. we have all that talent so that's nice. <laughs> well we will transition into fun questions now to end it off. This is my favorite part because I like learning all the fun facts. So the first one is if you could have a brand sponsor you, what brand would it be? So this question's kind of based off of, on social media and stuff. People, influencers, will get sponsors nowadays by stuff like Nike, Chipotle. It could literally be anything. I mean, there's so many different directions to take this. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> okay, so I love outdoor activities. Mm -hmm. I used to coach rock climbing. Really? And I love to That's climb. Cool. So I might say something like mountain hardware. Okay. That's um, fascinating. I've recently been getting into rock climbing. And I, do you know who Alex Honnold is? Mm -hmm. Watched his documentary. That's really cool. So um, I just took my lab to this place in West Virginia um, where they got to do a Via Ferrata which isn't really rock climbing, but it's where they put these metal um, steps and handholds in the rock. It, mm -hmm. It's um, Italian for the Iron Way, I think. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a day at, um, in, in West Virginia doing that. And when we were there, Hans Florian was there, and he was in the group before us. So he was in, Is the, that like a really good he was in the free solo movie. Which one was he? He was the one who broke both legs in a fall. Okay. And so, you know, I think uh, they they got wow. a kick out of that. Many of them had seen the, the movie, so. That's a, what a fun yeah. research professor that you take them to <laughs> do something crazy like that. That's awesome. Well, yes, that would be a great brand sponsor then. <laughs> um, okay, what's your favorite lobe of the brain? Well, I think if you study visual system, if you don't say the occipital mm -hmm. lobe, you're in trouble. <laughs> 
But to be honest, a lot of the things that I study aren't in the cerebral cortex. They're mm-hmm. actually subcortical. Okay. So I would say the occipital lobe and a lot of subcortical structures. Okay. <laughs> That's a good answer. Got to slip in the occipital and then have <laughs> your real answer. <laughs> um, if you could have any dream job not related to neuroscience, what would it be? I think if I could have any dream job that didn't include the brain, it would be something to do with outdoors, whether mm-hmm. it would be a mountain guide or maybe a professional cyclist. Okay. Something to do with some of the activities that I like. Yeah. When I was in high school, I went to Vancouver, Canada, um, for a competition, and we went to, I forget what it's called, like Windsor, something with a W, up in Canada, but they have amazing zip lining up there. Whistler, maybe? Whistler, yes. Um, And have you ever been there? I have not. Heard of it? No. They have this, I recommend it highly, but through their mountains have this insane zip lining, and the instructors are just, I guess, college students on summer break, and I remember thinking, that is the coolest job. They just get to zip line all day. So I agree. Outdoor activities would be fun. In 2019, I took almost three weeks off from work, which I had never done. (laughs) And I went um, mountaineering in Ecuador. Wow. And I, and I just remember thinking, like these, these guys get to do this every day. That's Mm -hmm. a pretty amazing life. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, if you love the outdoors, and I feel like you definitely would get jealous of the people that get to spend all their time outdoor doing these fun activities. It's like being a skydiving instructor or something. That's your job. (laughs) Um, I'm sure they get bored of it, and they think the other jobs are interesting. I would wonder if you would get tired of it. Yeah. I don't know. If I could be something like a ziplining skydiving instructor just for the summer, you know, summer job, that would be ideal, I think. Every summer, just for a few months. But... um, did you feel like that when you were a rock climbing instructor? How long did you do that for? So I was a coach when I was um, in grad school. So I was in grad school, and I was a route setter at a local gym, and I coached for about a year. Um, but I took a lot of the uh, climbing team to uh, like to climb outside all the time, even when I wasn't the coach. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's like a little bit of the, the mentor in me, taking okay. people under my <laughs> wing and and um, getting to expose them to outside climbing, not just gym climbing. So did you ever get tired of that? Never. Okay. (laughs) You do what you love, I guess you don't (laughs) like. What class at Virginia Tech would you want to take if you could be a student here? Well, I told you that when I had the opportunity to take lots of extra classes, I ended up taking PE (laughs) classes. I took climbing, I took mountain biking, kayaking. I took all those sorts of classes, Mm -hmm. so I would probably take some additional outdoor classes. classes, I would, um, I also was a philosophy minor at William & Mary, and I, I wouldn't say I, uh, performed as well in those classes as I did in my (laughs) science classes, but I, they were always thought-provoking, Yeah. and so I really enjoyed those classes, and so I probably would, um, get involved in more ethics classes or, uh, more, more philosophy classes. That's interesting. What a contrast. I took two minor philosophy classes 
this these past two semesters and I think the transition from neuro to philosophy is so distinct because neuro is very concrete at least what we do know and it's one way and one thing happens and philosophy you're very opinion based and you have to back up what you're thinking and it's a different thought process yeah totally but yeah I, I don't know one might be able to help the other I guess yeah in ways. that's neat um and then last question what is your favorite place you've ever been to the Ecuador trip sounded really cool <laughs> so Ecuador was amazing um it's interesting because just this week after a year of pandemic we are having this discussion in my household. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to actually take our kids to? Okay. That's amazing, I think. I've been fortunate to travel for work and for play, to do expeditions and things mm-hmm. all over the country and the world. And so picking one is really difficult. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of a, a city, I thought Athens was mm-hmm. just an amazing place. And in terms of a place for outdoor adventure while some of the mountains I've been to have been great Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to imagine a place that's more unique than Yellowstone okay and so I just think that's just one of the most amazing places in the world and and so many different diverse amazing outdoor uh, components the the geyser basin the Mm -hmm. mountains Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you were able to take away something from my conversation with Dr. Fox. Now, at the top of this episode, I mentioned how I have graduated, but I wanted to say that since this podcast has been such a fun and positive endeavor for me with lots of support from y'all, I have decided to keep going, at least for now, and see how it does during my first year post-grad. So this will not be the last episode. There will be more to come with our faculty and other people within neuroscience. And I'm really appreciative to all of you who listen and always feel free to share any feedback with me. Thanks and have a great rest of your day.